The world lay silent 2,000 years ago, but ever since then, uh, there's no excuse for silence uh, because there's a reason to celebrate, right? Uh, when the angels started singing, uh, we have continued singing ever since. If you have a Bible, I would love for you to open up with me to Isaiah chapter 59. Of course, I'm sure you read this before you went to bed last night because it's everybody's favorite Christmas passage, right? Uh, Isaiah 59. Uh, we're going to read verses 14 through 21, which I think you'll find uh, is, is, if it hasn't ever come up in your Christmas readings, maybe it should. Um, this is one of the few passages where God himself tells us what really was the inspiration for the Christmas story as we know it. So if you find your places in your Bible, Isaiah 59, kind of halfway through the Old Testament, we'll hear from God's word. Verse 14 says, justice is turned back and righteousness stands afar off. For truth is fallen in the street and equity cannot enter. So truth fails and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Then the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him. In his own righteousness, it sustained him. For he put on a righteousness as a breastplate, a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with a zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, accordingly he will repay. Fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. The coastlands he will fully repay. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy comes like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. The redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. As for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them. My spirit who is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your descendants, nor from the mouth of your descendants' descendants, says the Lord. From this time and forevermore. So the prophet Isaiah gives us a word from God that one day there would be a movement from heaven to earth, that God himself would see that there was a plight on the earth, that God himself would see that the enemy of sin and death was rising more and more, bringing under the people that he loved so much, the world that he made in his image, the people that he chose to uh, honor him with their lives, that God would see all of this and one day God would make a decision. I am gonna go fix the problem my self. And one day, every generation will tell the story again and again, over and over and over again. One day, there will be no cease of the story being told of when God came to earth to save his people. I'd say the prophet Isaiah was right, wouldn't you? Around 700 BC, little did anyone know in his generation that every year in December, as it was cold and dark and windy as could be, every year people from all around the world would gather together to celebrate the birth of a Jewish baby. You know, by the time we arrive at Christmas Day, there's not much that we haven't said about Christmas, right? Um, We've spent the last month talking about Christmas, looking at every prophecy, promise, passage, and commentary the Bible offers, as well as looking back through history and seeing all the different ways the world has celebrated it and honored the birth of Christ in the season. And, and as we've marveled before, uh, I, I think it's, 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 it's right to ask the question, is there, any, 
is there any other day of the year, any other single day of the year that lends itself to so much hype and so much discussion? And I, I think the answer is no, of course there isn't. I mean, no other day dominates the span of weeks or months so much that Christmas is a category. It's a genre to itself. Now, now maybe you're one of those people, uh, you're one of those people that, that you try to turn your birthday celebration into a multi-day event, right? And, and you know, that, that's fine if you do that. Uh, but really, the only person that thinks that's appropriate is you, right? Everybody else kind of thinks that's kind of a little bit extra. Uh, but, but when it comes to Jesus' birthday, I mean, he's got us all topped. I mean, he gets from Halloween to New Year's, basically, right? He gets over two months where every single day is a lead-up to and a build-up to the celebration of his birth. Now, I guess it's appropriate. I guess it's appropriate that the day on which the Savior of the whole world was born demands and allows for such extravagance, don't you? I mean, I guess it's appropriate that Jesus' birth is just too big to fit into one day. It spreads a little bit before and it spreads a little bit over extra. Jesus deserves the extra. And it's only fitting that the day that brought Jesus into the world just contains too much good news and too much splendor and amazing details that can be contained to a single day of conversation and thoughts. But, but alas, we've unpacked so much about Christmas. We've said so much about Christmas. We've sang and we've acted it out. We've threw parties and gathered around tables. Uh, we've watched everything there is that's based on Christmas or inspired by Christmas. And yet, there's still more that can be said. And I don't know about y'all, but as somebody who talks about Christmas for weeks on end, as somebody who reads about Christmas and plans about Christmas and prepares for Christmas for almost a quarter of the year, I, I, still, I still never take for granted every single year, maybe this year more than, than ever, I, 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 I never take for granted how important this day is. And honestly, I can't get past the very premise, the very basic idea of Christmas, there's so much depth to Christmas theologically and in the scope of how it changed the world, but, but I'm telling you, I can't get past the, the, the very surface level idea of Christmas. It leaves me speechless and awestruck every single year. I, I just think about it. On the surface, when we're just talking about the bullet point basic description of Christmas, it seems like the most unlikely of realities. Why would God lower himself from heaven to earth? I mean, just try to answer that question without boggling your mind. Why would God, what good reason is there for God to lower himself from heaven to earth? From the unlimited to the limited, from the divine to dust, from glory to grime, from forever to fragile. How often, how often do you, how often do you lower yourself, put yourself out? out of the goodness of your heart, in a way that will forever change your life, alter your well-being, future self in, in a costly and deeply impactful way, in a way that doesn't directly benefit you at all. How often do you just lower yourself for the gain of someone else that might not even treat you the way you should be treated, that doesn't even respect you like they should? Now imagine if you're the God of the universe. <laughs> Would you ever consider doing such a thing for such a people? Heck, set aside the idea of coming to earth as a lowly creature who had messed everything you made up. Would you even consider them from on high and allow them to even cross your mind? If you were to consult with every other religion and every concept of how the supposed gods or God that is above us looks at people below them, every religion and every culture across history would say, if you want to talk about how the gods and people relate to each other, this is how it works. The gods play and people pay. The gods do what they want to, and people suffer for it because they deserve to suffer. I mean, look at what they've done to the world that the gods made. 
Never would you ever imagine a God superior in its intellect in, in, in every way over the subjects. Never would you imagine that a God would do anything to benefit the inferior disobedient creatures. Consider the needs of a finite creature like us. More like they would peel back the curtains and you could see the puppeteer strings where they are making us dance and do what they want us to do. Christmas, though, when it first came, really to this day, in light of all the, how, uh, how all of us understand ourselves and how we covet power and hold on to power, it, it just seems like the most crazy and wild and impossible idea. The gods play and people pay. That makes sense. But Christmas makes zero sense. God so loved that he gave that we might be saved? God with us and God for us from him unto us? I mean, that kind of benevolence and pure nature is the farthest thing from our minds. And it's just as hard to imagine it being on God's mind, ever. Yet the story of the Bible is that from the very beginning, when humans made a mess of everything, God never once removed himself or excused himself from the mess. He didn't so much as put caution tape and tell the humans to fix their mess if they ever wanted to see him again. He didn't do what your parents did when they came to your room and said, you're not leaving the house until you clean this mess up, right? He didn't put a traffic cone to divert the rest of the creatures around the sinkhole that Adam and Eve dug. No, he immediately invested himself in the mess that he didn't make and put on himself the responsibility of cleaning it up. Now, at first, it seemed as if it was going to be a mutual cooperation of sorts, that God would do something and people would do something. It would be a shared responsibility. But even then, it was always God who initiated the process in the Old Testament. All throughout the Old Covenant, we see where humans got themselves in a deep mire every single time. God wouldn't wait for them to ask for him to intervene. He was already there. We were already on his mind. You can read throughout the Old Testament on several occasions verses like this. But God remembered his people. When we had forgotten him and forsaken him, God always remembered people. The very people that made the mess. God was so invested, God so loved, and he was so much for and so desired to be with that he always remembered to move back towards people to offer a way back to him. And eventually it became clear. If the mess was going to get cleaned up, it was only going to get exponentially worse the more time went by, by the way, if the mess was going to get cleaned up, God was going to have to do it himself. It was going to take more than just God remembering us, though, thinking about us, though. God was going to have to redeem and reconcile us back to himself. And those very words, redeem and reconcile, they, they evoke a cost. That God was going to have to pay a price that we owed. God was going to have to work behind the scenes in the universe in a way that we could never understand. That if God was going to get us back to himself, he was going to have to do the work all by himself. And again, it makes no sense. Can you even imagine why that would ever be on his agenda? Would it be on your agenda? No. The passage we opened up with from Isaiah is a prophecy that's so outlandish that nobody ever took it serious, but it's the heart of God on display. As God observed us all wallowing in a mess that we made and were making worse, he came to be, and don't miss this, both Savior and sacrifice. Do you see that? He came to be both the one who saved the day, but also the one who sacrificed himself in our place. Again, that's just incredible. 
our little minds will never be able to comprehend the most basic surface level idea of Christmas. We shouldn't move past that idea too quickly. That God would do this for us. You know, for so many of us, we've heard the gospel so much so long that we do take for granted. And we just do, right? I'm not picking on anybody. I do this. We do this. We take for granted that we have a God so loving and gracious and merciful and good and faithful like we do. He's always been that way. He will always be that way. And, and, and he doesn't wait for us to check in and say, hey, God, are you going to be good today? He's always good. But I think it's a good act of worship for us today to just consider and just marvel at the heart of his redeeming and reconciling work, which is, is, which is his incarnation. And, and again, when you think about the incarnation, God lowered himself. God debased himself. The very idea of that is a demotion of sorts, right? I mean, I don't know about y'all, but nobody wants to talk about de being demoted. That's a very depressing conversation to have, right? right? It's a very gloomy conversation. Hey, I got demoted today. Hey, that's not good news, right? But God demoted himself, right? God lowered himself. Yeah, the passage in Isaiah presents God as a superhero coming to save the day. But we know how it worked. God left glory and came here. And not only was coming down here a demotion, but what happened to him while he was here was, the, was more than a demotion. It was a disgrace. Right? What, what would you imagine if, if God announced, hey, I'm going to come next week? I mean, you know, if we had the nature to prepare it for it, we would roll out the red carpet. We, we would never be able to do enough to prepare for God, right? We would never be able to do enough that would honor him and, and, and give him the platform he deserved, right? When some dignitary rolls in from in a, in a community, a country, right? Everything, all the stops are pulled out, right? And rightfully so. But we could never present a, a platform for God to stand on that would be worthy of his presence. Yet humanity did the exact opposite to God. Not only did he demote himself, but, 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 but then we all turned on him and killed him, Right? Crucify him was the cry. Let his blood be on our hands was the cry. Again, it wasn't just a demotion. It was a disgrace. But you know, if you were to ask God today, would you say it was a disgrace what they did to you? God would say, that's all grace. That's all grace that I've given to you. And, and that's what's so mind-blowing about Christmas, isn't it? That it just doesn't make sense. Yet we've heard it so much and sang about it so much and we've experienced so much that it's so real and we couldn't imagine a world where it wasn't our reality. I want you to listen to what David wrote when he uh, mused about the idea of God sharing the burden before David knew how it was going to work out. When he was first hearing that God was going to help relieve us from our sin and save us from our sin, and he was trying to figure it out because the law said do this and God would do this, and maybe if we do, do half the job, God will do the other half. When David was thinking about the idea of God considering to help us, here's what David wrote in Psalm 8. When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him. So, so what is David saying? God, who are we that you even think about us? Right? Who are we that you even have us on your mind? Now, of course, David was King David. 
the one who God would use and would give a promise to that not only was he mindful of humanity and thoughtful of humanity, but he was going to do more than just think about us. He was going to come and save us himself. No, it was to David that God first promised that he was going to get intimately and personally involved in the cleanup process. He wasn't going to just send a crew to clean up and send us the bill. He was going to come and do everything himself and pay for it himself. 2 Samuel 7, this is what David, God told David. When your days are revealed and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish a throne for his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And David could not at all have imagined what God was saying to him right here. That he's going to build a house for me. right? He's going to build a, build a community for me, which is the church. And I'm going to build a kingdom from him, for him that's going to inherit the world and going to overtake all that, that rules and reigns. And, and David, David's response is, and again, David wrote Psalm 8. What is man that you're mindful of us? David said this in response. King David went in before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house or what is my family that you've brought us this far? Who am I? Who are we that God would think of us? David couldn't believe it that God was going to choose and anoint one of his own offspring to redeem creation, but David didn't even have the whole picture, right? Because how would God choose? Uh, how would God do this? He would choose two of David's offsprings. David had different uh, had sons from different marriages and from one son would come a man named Joseph from another son would come a woman named Mary and from these two God would bring this prophesied son of David Joseph would just be the adopted father of course the son that God would give to Mary would be immaculately and miraculously conceived nonetheless he would be a son of David indeed an heir of David's throne the next in line to rule Israel but the first in line to rule the world but come on Israel, the world, God already had heaven. That wasn't his incentive. And that's what makes it even more remarkable and even more humbling. Because it wasn't any earthly throne or earthly prize, material as it would be, that drove him and motivated him. It was us. Do you hear that? It wasn't anything material on this earth. He had it all in heaven. Oh, he came to be king of, of Israel. Really? He had heaven, right? What did he need a nation for? It was us that drove him to do it. And that begs the question, who are we that God would get this involved in saving us when he had nothing to gain in the process except us? But you see, that's the point. We were all he wanted. And we'll never truly be able to understand this and will obviously never deserve this. God is too pure and it's beyond us, but think, but I think it's necessary that we at least get a glimpse of this side of God and spend today, hopefully, looking at this side of God. David discovered and marveled at God's plan. Who am I? Who are we? In the beginning, he created Adam and Eve out of, out of the overflow of his love, people try to come up with all these deep reasons. Why did God make people? I mean, you know, what was God's reason for creation? John, the closest follower of Jesus, of course, God made flesh. John, the, one of the best friends of Jesus, put it simple. When people said, hey, John, why did God do all this? Why did God create? Why did God make us and, and, and start this whole process? John said, it's real simple. 
God is love. And, and not the love that you know. Not the love that you feel. It's a part of that. That's from that. But it's a deeper and richer and purer love than you'll ever know. But it's pretty similar to why you, the way you feel about your kids and the way you feel about your grandkids. Is there something in you that just wanted to share? There was something in you that overflowed to the point that you wanted somebody else to share life with. God wasn't lonely. God wasn't incomplete. God was just and is just love. And what does love do? Love by nature shares and gives and overflows. Love is not static. Love is dynamic. Love pours out. So God made people in his image. He made them male and female to bless and care for, for his glory. He came to walk with them in the cool of each day to give them a good life in the world full of all they could ever want. Yet sin ripped all that away. And not only did it cost us, but it took it from God. Because God made it all from the beginning to enjoy. And when sin ripped that from him, it was as personal to God as it was to us. So Christmas may seem out of place or abnormal for a God who only creates and doesn't care, who only rules and doesn't nurture, but that's not our God. Of course, we, uh, we know that to be the case. So therefore, Christmas and our God go hand in hand. And if someone says, hey, tell me about your God in a nutshell, just talk to them about Christmas. Tell them the Christmas story because Christmas is the overflow of God's extravagant and radical love. Because God has been in the Christmas spirit from the very beginning, giving and loving and caring and going the extra mile for those who couldn't care less, honestly. While initially Adam and Eve ignored God's extravagant love, many generations after paid little attention to no attention, there were the likes of David who were all struck by God's kindness and bent posture. And of course, in the aftermath of Christmas, an entire movement has been born, men and women, boys and girls, who spend their lives adoring and worshiping the God of Christmas. And for the last 2,000 years, Christmas has been mesmerizing a sizable, ever-growing portion of the population because who are we and what is mankind that God God would be mindful of us. If you think about anything on Christmas Day, think about that line from Psalm and from David. Who are we? Who am I that God would not just think of us, but would become one of us? And why did he do it? Because he knew we would, we would never understand him. We would never relate to him. We would never encounter him. We could never approach him if he did not come and see us for himself. I love the imagery in that passage from Isaiah where God says, I saw that there was no intercessor. So I put on salvation. I put skin on and I came to redeem them myself. I wasn't going to wait for somebody else to save my kids. And you would do the same, wouldn't you? And that little spark of love in your heart is the thumbprint of God. You know where it came from. It came and it comes from Christmas. John, again, would go on to write this. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So why does John say Christmas happened? 
so that you would know God's love and that you would have God's life. Is that, is that simple enough? Why did Christmas happen? Because it shows you God's love undeniably. It shows you the extravagant love of God. No one can ever say, I don't know about God's love. I mean, I don't really know. Does he really love us? I mean, just look at Christmas. In this, Christmas reveals the love of God. And why did Christmas happen? So you might live. We, ought, we have life because of his love. We have and because of his love, we can find true life in him. Church, I, I just don't want you to move past that too quickly. I know Christmas is almost over, but this line of thought should stay on our minds a little while longer. Who are we? Well, according to the Bible, we are loved by God. And because of Christmas, we can unwrap his love and receive true life through him. Before we go, I want to give you three quick bullet point truths about what the new life that's been available to you. I want to give you three things that this life can mean to you. What Christmas brings to your life and what you have access to because of Christmas above all else. You can turn to these passages if you want to. If you, if you want me just to read them to you, that, that would be fine as well. I'm going to put the, te the text on the screen and the point that I want you to pull from each text. The first one is Isaiah 9. You're very familiar with these passages. Isaiah 9, 2, verse 6 and 7. The first thing I want you to take away from Christmas, the life that God gives you from Christmas, is that he gives you a new foundation for life. Listen to these words from God. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. So no light, no life, but God has turned the lights on. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Say it with me if you know them. Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever, the Lord of hosts will perform this. As in, God's going to give us something from this and give us a new life because of this. So, God came down to earth to rebuild our world from the ground up. You know, if a foundation is bad about a house or a building, there's really no hope for the building. You've got to tear it down and rebuild it. But God did the unthinkable. He rebuilt the world from the ground up while, while, while it was all operating as it was, right? He repaired the broken foundation without destroying it. Only God could do that. Christmas gives us a brand new basis for understanding God and a new foundation for doing life. Christmas reveals to us a God who loves us, who is for us, will always be with us. Those, core, those things can be core, should be core to us every day, should be a part of our foundation every day. God loves us. He is for us. He is with you. Isaiah said there's true peace found here, not through worldly politics or worldly success or economics, but through a relationship with your heavenly father, through the savior that he sent to love you and give his life for you. If you're ever tempted to shift your weight to any other foundation, remember why Christmas happened, to give you a government that you can depend on, a foundation you can put your weight on that can hold you up and support you and re resurrect the life that you lost outside of it. 
Remember the gift of Christmas. Remember that God didn't just think of you. He came to redeem you. That we have a problem the world can't fix. People can't fix. Nothing can solve the problem in this world. Only Jesus can and only Jesus did. And only through him do you find love and life. You can look for it in a lot of places and people promise it from a lot of places, but you'll only find the love that you need and the life that you need from Jesus and those that reflect him. So can I make a plea to you today? Don't give your heart to any other name or throne because only one name left his throne for you. Do you hear that? What, is the, what does Isaiah say? I'm gonna, God's gonna build a foundation. This is what government means, right? It's not about a kingdom or a place or an economy that we think. It's a foundation, right? God has given us a foundation and it's on the shoulders of the baby that was born 2,000 years ago, right? All those paradoxes, it just doesn't make sense, yet that is what we have been given. The shoulders of our Savior and his government will never fail and will never falter and you can rest on him and if you put your weight on anything else, you will fall in a minute. But if you put your weight on Jesus, you'll never struggle, you'll never stumble. So don't share the praise, don't share your worship, don't share your faith with any other name or throne because there's only one name who left his throne for you. The second way that Christmas gives us new life is reflected from Micah 5.2 and it brings us new possibilities. It means new possibilities. Micah 5.2, you've heard this before, but you, Bethlehem, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one who will rule in Israel, whose going forth are from of old and from everlasting. The story of Jesus being born in Bethlehem to an audience of shepherds in a manger, all that shows how God subverted the world's order of things, how God turned things upside down. But that, like the new foundation, that shows that God has come to give us a new way to live. There are things about us that are not as they should be or could be. There are weaknesses and shortcomings that we have. We fall and we fail, but Christmas came to a little town, through a little child, to a group of unexpected and unlikely characters to remind us that God loves you no matter what you've done or where you've been and how, short, how, how, how weak you may be, how, how much you've fallen short. God loves you. He does not have any limits or bounds on his love. He can inject life into anybody, anywhere. Christmas happened where it happened to show you and me that all of us are primed and ready to receive the gift. You don't got to be somebody or do some great thing. You just have to open your arms up and say, I need what God has and I can't find it anywhere else. Jesus' ministry is defined by this, isn't it? He didn't call the qualified. He, he chose those that nobody else chose. He enabled those that nobody else thought could mount into anything. He chooses us, his love equalizes the playing field, and his life empowers us. Christmas opens you up to new possibilities that you've never considered before, all because God considered you worth coming this way to save. So don't sell yourself short. Don't ever think, well, I'll never be able to do that because look at me. And of course, God says, I saw you that far away. I saw you in that weakness, and I sent Jesus to the, most sm to the smallest town, to the most unlikely audience, to prove to you that yes, even you, can be saved. Lastly, Matthew chapter 2, verse 10 and 12 shows that Christmas will give us new desires for life. Matthew 2 tells us, this is about the wise men. They saw the star. They rejoiced when they 
found the boy with exceedingly great joy. When they came to the house where he was, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshiped him. And when they opened their treasure, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their country another way. I want you to think about these wise men who literally laid their treasures down at the feet of baby Jesus. Now, they brought these treasures because they thought they were going to meet a king and his son. They thought they were going to go into a palace where these dignitaries were. They thought they were going to, you know, have to impress some famous family and they wanted to give some gifts because they wanted to, you know, work a deal in. Hey, think of us when you take control because, hey, we brought you gifts, so maybe you'll do us a favor one day. But when they found a baby with his mother in the most unlikely of places, uh, off the radar in Bethlehem, do you think it crossed their mind that maybe we don't have to give him the gold? I mean, look around. This place, these, these people are poor. There's not a throne anywhere nearby. I mean, should we really pour out the spices and the ointments for the baby? Maybe not. I mean, that lot about that, but you know, we all think that from time to time, should I really give all I've got to Jesus? I probably could handle it better myself. That logic assumes that treasure is better off in our hands as we exclusively know how to manage and make the most out of valuable things. Do you see the lesson of the wise men? That when they met Jesus, they didn't think, well, I don't need to give him anything. They laid their treasure down because they had new desires when they met the Savior. Do you see that? That they saw him and they acknowledged that he knew better what to do with those treasures than they did. Listen, I know you've got your life figured out and you've got a whole plan for everything going forward, but you know what? Jesus coming to this earth suggests that we need intervention, right? We need a savior. And maybe he knows what to do with your treasures and your life more than you know what to do with your life. Maybe there isn't life outside of him after all. It's a lot harder for us mortals to admit that, isn't it? Imagine the people who chastised the wise men. You gave what to the baby? Years later, a similar controversy happened when one of Jesus' disciples criticized a woman who anointed him with costly perfume. People said, you're wasting that. But Christmas shows us the value of living for Jesus above all else because he came to love and live and die for us above all else. So why should we worship Jesus? Why should we pour out all that we have for him? Because there's literally, that's literally what he did for us. So that we might know love and have life in him. You know, in a way, Jesus made Christmas all about us. He came to find us to save us. So church, we ought to make it all about him in celebration, shouldn't we? The wise men saw the baby and they knew instantly this is different. This, 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 this is not just a baby. This is, this is the savior. So they poured everything out they had. Because they realized that he had a way of directing their lives that they couldn't find elsewhere. Can we take hold of this gift of love so that we might truly and fully and finally live? These new foundations that we've been given, these new possibilities, these new desires, say our lives change. After all, who are we that we could even get to this place that we even get to see his star, much less be shown the way and give a chance to lay our lives down at his feet. Today, we celebrate the day that he was born to die so that we might know love and have life.
Let's just worship from that place until it sinks in and changes us. You've got a new foundation for life. You've got a new, new possibilities for life. And he'll give you new desires. If you come and let it sink in, let it wash over you. He did all this for me. Who are we that God would leave heaven to come to earth? You, you know who you are? You are a child of God. He loves you. He did all this for you. So you know what our response should be? We should make it all about him. Because he's worthy, isn't he? He's worthy. And pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this awesome opportunity to be in your house today. Lord, there's no better place to be, no better family to be with. Thank you for these folks that have come out to give you their time and their worship this morning. Lord, I know there's a busy day ahead of us, but will we just take a few moments to think about what you did for us? Who are we that you would do this? It doesn't make any sense, but the Bible says you love us, that you call us your own. You sent Jesus to save us, to adopt us, and to make us your own family. Father, I pray you'd be with us all today and remind us of what Christmas means and show us what Christmas can mean for our lives going forward. A new foundation, new possibilities, new desires. Lord, let us come to the baby that was born in Bethlehem. And like the wise men, they poured everything out they had. He didn't make any sense, but they realized that he knew what to do with it more than they did. Lord, thank you for giving us life. Thank you for showing us love. And help us not to be distracted by any other light today, but the light that shines over the manger. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.